Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's Matter Loading Session. As always, I'm Kyle. I'm Nina. Today we start with COVID-19 updates. And I think the most important one to note of is that we're back to ECQ this month, this week, this... This month. They call it the August ECQ. And the thing is like, this is probably the most important update. But it's also the one that I have least concrete knowledge about <laughs> yeah like I, I don't know what's going on like with all the numbers and letters well not numbers but letters that they just combine like m-e-c-q e-c-q like what do those even mean gcq days? with heightened restrictions yeah like that. yeah that so was you... a trial period right from august 1 to 5 it was like gcq with heightened restrictions whatever that meant yeah i was talking to clarice the other day and she was like i really don't understand the rules with regard to Hatid Sundo because there are apparently confusing rules about drivers who are not authorized to go out of their houses. They call them authorized persons outside of residence or APOR. APOR? But, but anyway, last August 4, if you are not authorized to leave your house, you cannot fetch or drop off anybody even if the person that you're fetching or dropping off is authorized to leave. So basically, bawalang hatid sundo. So of course, a lot of people got annoyed because people who are authorized to go out, not they do not necessarily always have the ability to do it on their own. And in reality, a lot of people really do have um, a hatid sundo set up within their family. And the fact that you have public transportation that is only working at half capacity right now, it didn't really help either. So because of that outrage, the next day, August 5, it seems that the PNP sort of just backtracked and are allowing Hatid Sundo again. All in all, I feel like the main story here is that we have ECQ, um, but like unsurprisingly, it's unhelpful. Unsurprisingly, it's unclear. It also, for me, doesn't help that um, because we have ECQ, it's very difficult to get vaccinated. Yeah, so vaccine mall drives have been suspended indefinitely. For example, Manila residents flocked to SM San Lazaro to secure COVID-19 vaccines last August 5, a day before the ECQ was going to take place. After the chaos erupted and there were so many people running towards the mall and flocking outside the mall, the vaccine drive got suspended and was shut down because it was just not safe anymore and that just kind of proves also that i guess as a side note vaccine hesitancy isn't our main opponent anymore it's the lack of vaccines and the lack of proper systems to actually get them out there yeah so it's i feel like it's distribution isn't it yeah more distribution more the systems of our government like there's no I, I'm from Pasig, and I know Vico's doing their best and trying to be very systematic about it, but I still don't know why the priority is being followed. Like, the hierarchy and lettering system, or was it numbering system? Was it letters or numbers? I think, don't they use both? Oh, like uh, yeah. The tiering. Yeah, the, the tier system just isn't working. There are some people that don't want to be vaccinated, just skip them and move on. I feel like we need to prioritize herd immunity. But, you know, that's local news. Yeah, and speaking of distribution, we do have some good news about COVID 
response, specifically vaccine distribution, we also have some bad news about it. So the good news is 70% of Americans have received at least a single vaccine shot. And it's not a perfect piece of news because like it's a good number, but the goal was initially July 4. But still, it's still a great number. It's like very commendable that Joe Biden and you know America in general has gotten so many people vaccinated. But what about bad news? I think here we have to talk about COVAX. Yeah, so what is COVAX? It's an initiative that aimed to get vaccines to all countries at equal rates. I mean, even that statement alone is laughable, like that goal of being able to distribute it at equal rates, whatever I think that it's, means. I think it's admirable because there was significant problems before about the fact that the United States was hoarding all the vaccines. That's still a problem, though, isn't it? Yeah, but that's the reason why COVAX was so hopeful. You know, it made people more hopeful before. Yeah, so it has good intentions. It's an alliance of international health systems and nonprofits. And on the whole, it's worth like billions of dollars. So, what's really the problem? The problem is, even though I think it's very admirable, they've struggled to secure doses of vaccines to most of its partner states. So now, they're half a billion short of their target. Like, you really want to distribute, but you're half a billion short of the distribution target. The problem has also extended to the delivery of the vaccine. So the distribution was so slow that they had 110,000 doses of AstraZeneca that expired before they even reached the target country. And the problem with that is the shortfall is leaving poor countries behind. As you have, you know, the Delta variant, the Lambda variant, um, that is making the pandemic even worse. So at this point, the success of COVAX was truly very crucial. So it's very disheartening to see it fail like this. But let's talk about why it's failing first, because this is a distribution thing. Let's talk about why the distribution systems didn't do as well as we expected them to. Yeah, so we already know that vaccines are available, but they're just not getting to the right people in time. So it's a bad prioritization problem. The method right now is to allocate vaccines in proportion to population size. And that seems like a good idea, right? Because the bigger your country, the more people you have, the more doses you'll need to be able to achieve herd immunity. You prioritize based on population because that's how the estimate is in terms of getting things done and actually making changes happen but the problem here is that it forgets that different countries are at different stages of the pandemic so it's not just about the size it's about like how the local governments are doing how much progress is being made are people actually quarantining themselves have the governments issued lockdowns or have they issued travel bans and some are countries with smaller populations but have had their health systems completely collapse On the other hand, there are also questions of who really needs it. Because it's true, African countries have, on the whole, less vaccines. But they aren't seeing the really, really bad outbreaks in India and Brazil. So if it's a debate, think about whether you should prioritize the number of people who should be helped or who actually needs the vaccines the most based on local factors and government factors and political things. So it's weird because if you're giving it on the basis solely on the basis of population size, that really doesn't jive with what the public health experts use to measure the gravity of a public health situation. Because 
the public health experts, they look at things like the incidence rate, which is the percentage of the population with the illness. They look at the attack rate, which is the number of people who will get infected within a certain amount of time. And that differs or varies depending on what variant, oh, that was a pun, um, what variant <laughs> it is or how dense the population is. So if you look at the health system uh, capacity, that could also be uh, something that varies across state, uh, from state to state. So you can give a government hundreds of thousands of vaccines, of doses, but if they cannot administer them all before they expire, it's a lot of wasted resources. So you shouldn't really look at the total number of people in the country, and COVAX has really made it you know, clear that we should reassess our priorities with regard to vaccine distribution. But now, let's talk about some mixed. So earlier we talked about some good news and bad news. Let's talk about some mixed news. It's not, it's kind of weird actually, because it's about Japan and its odd strategy against COVID. Because Japan aims to control the Delta and Lambda variants through public shaming. So last Monday this week, the Minister of Health publicly named individuals in a press conference, and three persons were named and were said to have violated protocols, and they did not respond to the calls of the government officials, etc. Uh, and those individuals came from Hawaii, they came from South Korea. So the issue made it a bit contentious because all of them got tested and they were negative, but they were still publicly shamed because they forgot or failed to update the Japanese government about the, uh, about the results of those, te those tests. And that's the reason why they got shamed. It's not even because they weren't being careful. It was just that they didn't really, you know... <laughs> Update, um, update. Like, yeah, you know, you you get that because like, you are expecting that people will give you information in a timely manner because you need that information as soon as possible as well. Uh, and you see Japan right now having relatively low infection rates. So the there was an issue about the Olympics where people were scared that because they're holding the Olympics, you would have an upsurge of cases. But what actually happened was that Japan has had relatively low infection rates despite holding the Olympics. It actually dropped from 10,000 to 8,300. So it may or may not be due to the newly employed tactics um, mixed with the, va the fast vaccination rates. Um, I think the conclusion here is just we, we don't know yet for sure whether it works but if you're a debater you can sort of logic your way into seeing one side over the other like there's a practical side like you're you're getting people to comply with these health protocols because you're publicly named it's a panopticon etc on the other hand like what is the message that you're sending what is the principle that you should have as a government right now yeah and i feel like japan in general has a really big culture of honor and making sure your like identity and dignity is preserved so i i guess the tactic of shaming probably is the most effective in a country like that it won't work here like we shame our public officials and we shame each other all the time but it doesn't really get anywhere so i guess it's context specific so i guess we'll leave it up to you to argue about those but Speaking about shameless things, let's talk about Iraq and what happened in the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So I think everyone should know about this. Like thousands of different articles and different 
like pieces of art were stolen during the invasion of Iraq by the United States. So one of those things is the Epic of Gilgamesh and thousands of other prizes, ancient objects that were stolen. And on Wednesday, the U.S. announced it was going to return 17,000 archaeological artifacts to Iraq. And that's a big deal. I feel like that's something that might come up in a debate. If it doesn't, it's still something worthy of noting, especially if you weren't aware of the cultural stealing that has been happening every time the U.S. puts its toes somewhere, you know? I feel like people are aware. It's just that they don't really know the extent of, you know, the cultural stealing. Um, and, and you do see that in a lot of these cases, the act of returning is often a really good political move. Like if you're trying to repair relations, if you're trying to increase your goodwill in the international community, this kind of action tends to work because the message that you're signaling to me is that you want to move past the bad things that you did before. And this might be a signal that they are now more willing to give reparations for, you know, other things that are related to the invasion of Iraq. What's interesting to me, though, is that I, I see a lot of hot takes that this is something worth celebrating. And in my head, it's like, this is the, the bare minimum. Like, why are you celebrating this? It's like if I stole money from you, and then a few years later, I return it, and they're like, oh, Nina's so nice. Returning money she stole in the first place. Like, I feel like we should just accept it as what it is. It's a political move. I don't think it's worthy of applause. I think it's worthy of note. Right, it's it's noting the direction the United States is taking. It's noting that Biden might not be as bad as the previous president, but it's not something we should totally celebrate because I don't want society to start making this a trend. Like we celebrate the bare minimums that come from different countries that have industrialized and colonized others. And more than that, I was also thinking like, well. They invaded us, but at least they returned our our stuff, our <laughs> artifacts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now let's talk about some local news again. Earlier we we talked about the ECQ. We didn't really count that as local news. I feel like this that's is global COVID news. Yeah, COVID news. <laughs> that's COVID news. Let's talk about local politics news, starting with the alleged political harassment of Isco Moreno. So Isco Moreno is the mayor of Manila. And recently, the Department of the Interior and Local Government, or DILG, issued a show-cause order versus Isco Moreno for his alleged failure to implement the war on drugs in 2018. And the problem with that is, he was not the mayor in 2018. The person who was mayor in 2018 was former president era, mm -hmm. Joseph Estrada. So, I... A, Show cause order is basically a government agency or like a certain branch of government telling a certain person, hey, we have reason to believe that you did something wrong. Could you please tell us why we should not sanction you or try to discipline you? So that's basically what a show cause order is. Yeah, and what's funny about this was it was about a memorandum or I'm not sure what it's called. Like, not a memo, but basically an order like, hey, we have a war on drugs. Please do something about it. And it was released in May of 2018. And what's funny is it was released on the same day that Rodrigo Duterte appointed Isco Morenos Undersecretary of the Department of Social Welfare and Development. 
So literally, this person could not have done anything as the mayor of Manila because they were not the mayor of Manila. They were assigned to a different department by the same president that wants to hold him accountable for something he did not do. And True. Isko, being a sport about it, tweeted about it. You know, they literally retweeted a post from uh, Phil Star, I think, that said that, oh, Isko Moreno was it the mayor back in 2018. And then he, he quote tweeted it saying, Hey, 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 hey. That was it. And I was like, wow, what a power move. Um, I'm not a fan of Isko Moreno, but I can see they're taking a lot of these political attacks with stride. And they also kind of alluded to something by co-tweeting another article and saying, wow, galing ha, sunod-sunod na, hashtag alam na this. So I don't want to translate that because it will betray my lack of understanding of the Philippine language. But according to Philstar, their source said that it has a little bit of political harassment that's involved in it or potentially some sabotage. So it's interesting to see that Isco Moreno is basically like giving fuel to that like fire, like giving more to work on with that rumor that it's political sabotage or political harassment. But anyway, a lot of people speculate that this is due to the threat that Isco Moreno poses to next year's elections. And a lot can be analyzed about this. I think last week, we talked about this briefly. Um, but the show cause order was taken back just this morning with a DILG admitting that it had made a mistake and that the call order was for the previous mayor era. But anyway, let's talk about political harassment. We, I just mentioned like stuff that might affect the elections. Their next story is about the PDP Laban Slate. Alright, so this is all speculation, all rumors. Rappler has launched this story and says they have anonymous sources. I read through the entire article. It seems legit, but again, it can change. And it says that PDP Laban is going to nominate the tandem Senator Bongo and and Duterte as the... Which Duterte? Oh, the, the... Rodrigo. The Rodrigo one. I was gonna insult, but I'm like, is that legal? But anyway, so Bongo and Rodrigo Duterte will be the PDP Laban's um, basically champions. What's the proper term? Candidist. <laughs> I don't know why I said champions. Nominees. Nominees, right? For the elections. Um, This is obviously still a rumor, though a lot of people say it's set in stone and it's a done deal already, but we'll only truly know during September 8th the party's national convention and the day, you know, they decided to officially announce and launch their candidates. Yeah, um, and you can look at it as one of two ways. The first one is like, oh, we're basically screwed. But on the other hand, a lot of people tend to be more optimistic with regard to this news because people don't really find Bongo that hot. <laughs> so like, <laughs> Why did you use that word? Like, he's not that hot polit- politically. I don't think that people trust him to be an independent person, uh, which is what they sort of expect from a president. So even if, like, let's say Duterte gave Bongo the go-ahead and, like, the endorsement, people still probably wouldn't vote for Bongo if they do not feel like Bongo could ever be independent. Because the thing about Duterte, the reason why people really resonated with Duterte is he packaged himself as not only a political outsider, but also as a truly independent person 
who is not beholden to any of these political interests that you know you see from oligarchs um and even though he basically disproved that very very quickly people still have that image of him and i don't think that people have the same image with bongo i think you're you're forgetting something though a reason we should still be afraid it's the fact that we're not like other countries that elect tandems as tandems like in the united states where if you elect uh, joe biden you get kamala harris here you get to vote uh, separately so what's gonna happen is the fact that rodrigo duterte is running i think there's a big chance they're going to win so we might not be screwed based on who's gonna be president but we will be screwed based on who is vice president yeah although like <laughs> one thing that i find debatable here is why do we have a system where you can only like you you can vote for each of them separately and like they don't win as a pair because like the, the vice president is a spare tire right mm. so wouldn't it just make sense for the vice president to have already agreed with the with the president i i i feel bad for not remembering this but there is a interesting story as to why our system is like that it's very politically motivated. It wasn't because of some objective reason. I think there was a time like a certain president wanted someone else to be the vice president. And so they implemented this sort of policy and it just became our thing. I forget. I will probably make an episode about it in the future. Um, yeah, but, but it is an interesting story why we reached this point. And I agree with you. It's not a good system. It doesn't make sense, especially if we look at the context now where... Duterte doesn't want to coordinate at all with VP Lenny and actively does things to sabotage their projects. So I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> our next story is about the Olympics. Uh, we have two um, updates with the Olympics. The first one is about medals. Um, so for, I wouldn't say the first time, but it's a really refreshing sight to see that this time it's the Philippines taking gold and silver away from, you know, from Japan. Oops. Is that too... That's too real. Too soon? <laughs> too soon. <laughs> but too anyway, soon. the Philippines has now secured at least four medals from this year's Tokyo Olympics. Gold again for Hedlin Diaz. You have bronze for Yumir Marshall. You have silver for Nesty Petesho. And Carla Paalam still has a shot at the gold medal match for men's flyweight division in boxing so i guess like this is a really fast story because like every like everyone has already talked about how important it is from a nationalistic point of view to see your country be represented like in these really top athletes um but at the same time you can sort of see like government and finance departments of corporations sweating right now because like we, oh my god did we just really promise 50 million pesos to Hydaelyn Diaz and we're gonna have to pay donors tax on it according to the Bureau of Internal Revenue. Yeah, so I guess that's a fascinating story because it's also fun to see corporations like offering free things. <laughs> like it's really, it can be hilarious. Like lifetime supply of air conditioners from this particular country and this particular company. And I, I guess they just have to, you know, commit. Um, and it's amazing that our athletes are doing great. And that corporations have to suffer because of it. Like, it's a win-win all around, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, which leads us to the next one, which is about Simone Biles. The other week, we talked about how Simone Biles didn't 
feel like she was up for it and it was celebrated by a lot of people who were actually athletes actually gymnasts and on the other hand a lot of people were saying well she's just a quitter um, but really what happened to her was that she developed the case of the twisties and the twisties um i think that we can quote the washington post uh, which describes it as when gymnasts have the twisties they lose control of their bodies as they spin through the air sometimes they twist when they hadn't planned to other times they stop midway through as biles did um, and after experiencing the twisties once it's very difficult to forget because instincts get replaced by thought thought quickly leads to worry and worry is difficult to, to escape so if you look at you know twisties it's kind of difficult to understand like how big a deal that is because like you are several feet into the air and you're twisting and you're like running at a very fast speed so if you really mess up and then you hit your head you literally might die and the thing about twisties is it's quite common it's more common than you would realize but at the same time no one really understands why people get the twisties in other sports they call it the yips and the yips just like with the twisties they tend to destroy people's careers because it, like have you ever tried this thought experiment you know where do you ever realize that you're breathing all the time like I mean, when, yeah, when you realize you're breathing, like it, it feels so weird to breathe, right? So we're sorry if, if you're listening and then you go like, oh my God, I'm so self-aware about my breathing now and I can't really focus. So it's like that, but it doesn't really go away. And people don't know what causes the twisties. People do not know how to cure the twisties. People don't really know if it's a medical thing or a mental health thing. But anyway, people think that maybe what triggered the twisties was the fact that Simone Biles' aunt died in the middle of the Olympic Games, which may have been the cause. Yeah, so I feel like we've talked about mental health last week. It's worth noting again that a lot of things go through the heads of our athletes, and they're not just there for entertainment. I also want to relate this back to our own athletes because there's a tendency for us to be ungrateful for the medals they win for us as well as what they do for us as a country and for the sport that they're part of. And I don't know why people butt in when they really can't. Like, they don't know anything about the sport. Like, I, I see a lot of hot takes and I'm not a fan of it. But I guess we can now move on away from sports. Uh, not my comfort zone. Let's move to something that's a bit more of my comfort zone. Let's talk about fashion and beauty. <laughs> And also, hashtag girl boss. Girl boss, yeah. <laughs> hashtag girl boss. No, I'm not a fan of the girl boss vibe, but you know, like, I, I respect it. Well, I think that this is truly hashtag girl boss. And not in the, like, weird way that we've seen before, where if you're a girl boss or a female CEO, the gaslight gatekeep girl boss. Yeah, like, like you're actually not good. Yeah, but anyway, like, people are confused by now. It's about Rihanna. We're talking about Rihanna. It's so, about Rihanna. So, <laughs> Rihanna officially became a billionaire now, and according to Forbes, pop star Rihanna's net worth is an estimated 1.7 billion, making her the richest woman musician in the world. But her music is not her primary source of income, and her source of wealth, sorry, income is wrong. We, you used the word wealth. Um, most of it is actually from Fenty Beauty. Um, Robin and, Fenty? No, Robin Fenty is Rihanna's real name. So it's Fenty Beauty. Oh! You didn't know. Now you know. Yeah, so it comes from Fenty Beauty as, as well as the lingerie line that she has. Savage X 
Fenty lingerie. And it's interesting because I feel like that industry isn't very accommodating to women of color. Yeah. And Fenty Beauty changed that by having the widest range of foundations available. Yeah. And it, it's commendable that someone managed to reach this wealth. Though it's not really the first time we've seen someone reach this level of wealth with beauty products and makeup. Like we have Kylie Jenner. But it, it's different and I guess more commendable because Rihanna really did start from scratch with this. And also, I feel like Rihanna... By the way, Rihanna is like the second highest paid female entertainer in in the world. Who's the highest paid? Oprah. Oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Who else could it have been? I you know, know Taylor Swift. Like it, it's realistic. If you said Taylor Swift, like I'd believe it as well. Oh yeah, I would. I would have believed Taylor Swift as well. But yeah, it's Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Oprah. Okay. Yeah, and and you you kind of see here that on one hand, you can make an argument that making any beauty product line is not feminist, right? Because you are imposing somewhat of a beauty standard where, like, as long as you have concealers, you're sending a message that, you know, acne scars or whatnot, they're not pretty. So there is a camp of feminists who do not like beauty products or the beauty industry in general and are less likely to celebrate this. But on the other hand, this is sort of like a more intersectional success story for a female businesswoman. So anyway, <laughs> but there's also an issue there about wealth accumulation in general. Like even if this billionaire is a person of color, even if this billionaire started oh, from yeah. scratch, they're still a billionaire and there might be some ethical concerns with accumulating that much wealth when it could have gone to someone else. Yeah, and I remember the the catchphrase which is there are no ethical billionaires. Yeah. Like how ethical was Rihanna really in order to get that much money? Like, in order for anyone to make a profit, right? The, like, the simplest way to explain this, and to, maybe to radicalize people, the simplest <laughs> way to explain it is the only way for an employer to make money or for a capitalist to make money is to make a lot of revenue from a product or a service that they're selling and not give that same amount of money back to their workers. So there is some level of exploitation all around. Yeah, and even if you charge properly and paid your people well, you pass the burden on to someone else, which in this case would be the consumer, right? So yes. the consumer is paying really high fees for this these products. I remember I still have like a Fenty lip gloss and expensive like, brand. Yeah, it's super expensive. When I went to to the US, I went to Sephora. You know, curious me, my mom was with me and I was like, oh my god, Fenty Beauty. So I bought the lip balm. I forgot what it was called. And up until now, like every time I put it on, I feel like I'm putting literal like dollars on my lips. Not in a good way. Like I barely use it because while it's a really good product, I feel kind of dirty having something that luxurious. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know. Like, it reached that point where I can't enjoy the luxury that comes with it. I thought it was because of the fact that during the pandemic, you've seen that the sales of makeup, specifically lipstick, decreased. Yeah, I mean, that's also an interesting fact. It, like, fun fact, a lot of products right now that are related to lips and, like, the lower part of your face in general aren't selling that well. And it makes sense. Like, why would you put lipstick on if you're just gonna be wearing a mask? But the trend is going upward again. I checked this morning. 
And my theory, this is just a theory, my theory is that people in Zoom calls and TikTok, like, makeup is becoming a thing again because people have been selling themselves out as influencers and content creators. My theory is more that because more and more people are getting vaccinated, you know, people feel less of a need to wear masks in public. Which I still feel like is dangerous. Yeah, they should still wear masks. But anyway, back to Rihanna and Fenty Beauty. There's also an issue there, I feel, about feminism. So besides wealth accumulation and luxury in general, like, should we celebrate this as feminists? And I feel like, personally, it's a mixed bag for me. I would say yes, because we rarely see women of color be very successful in the field they decide to go to, especially when it's something that has been gatekept from women of color for so long. Like, the beauty industry is mostly white and most of the famous beauty gurus are uh people of that skin tone so i feel like we're celebrating why not and it's not like we can't hold these people accountable we can celebrate the fact that they are successful women of color but call them out if they borderline abuse and like in the future if there's an article that comes out that they've been using sweatshops and obviously our position will change right Mm -hmm. but for now why not celebrate yeah so I guess that leads us to our last two stories for this episode. The first one is something that Nina and I both really like. Nina likes it because it's international relations. I like it because there's sort of a law angle to this. And the story is that the United States is now offering refugee status to certain people from Afghanistan. So the U.S. State Department is now offering refugee status to Afghans who assisted the United States during the war in Afghanistan. So this would include, you know, individuals who, who worked for news outlets, who worked for medical services, non-government organizations or NGOs. And the reason why they're doing this is, you know, I think you should take it because this is the political aspect of why they're doing this. Yeah, so this is about optics, right? So the U.S. is sending a message, not just to people who enter Afghanistan or from Afghanistan, but to the rest of the world that, they're willing to help you out if you are harmed by your affiliation with the United States. It's sort of sending the message that I got your back. If you're my ally, then we will protect you. We will give you this particular status. And since they can't qualify technically as immigrants, the next best thing the United States could do is legally offer them asylum or refugee status. So I guess this is the part you find interesting. Kyle, what is refugee status? Why is it so different? So refugee has a specific meaning under the UN Convention on the Status of Refugees. I could make a story about the refugee theory in the Olympics here. But let me just talk about refugees in general, how to define it. So under that convention, refugees are defined as those who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion is outside the country of their nationality and is unable to or owing to such fear unwilling to avail himself of the protection of the country and that's just the first sentence of that's just the first sentence of that oh like i i was reading it and i didn't even like it (laughs) because i that's a problem with a lot of these um legal instruments it's kind of hard to read um but it's basically a legalistic way of saying that if you're outside of your country and you can't or don't want to go back to your home country or your country of nationality because you fear 
And this is a well-founded fear that you will be persecuted on the basis of race, uh, religion, nationality, political opinion. Then you can apply for refugee status. So basically, you're going to go to the embassy of another country and apply for refugee status. So what kind of gets my goat here is that just because you apply doesn't necessarily mean you're automatically a, a refugee. The fact here is that sometimes people use the terms refugee and asylum seeker interchangeably. So here's the difference. If you're confused by that, here's the difference. If you go to a country and say, hey, I'm a refugee, they don't automatically let you in. There's a process. So if you're seeking protection as a refugee from another country, you're undergoing that process, but it hasn't been granted to you yet. You're an asylum seeker. You're still seeking it. You're not a refugee. You're not refugee. You're not technically counted as a refugee yet. But if that protection was later granted, then you are a refugee and you were granted asylum. So um, last year we had this issue about um, Miss Universe. I think Miss Cambodia be- was declared a refugee as mm-hmm, well by mm-hmm. making statements against their government. So like, keep that in mind, not only for this story, but for other issues as well. Because every now and then an issue about someone or a group asking for asylum or claiming refugee status comes up. It will help to know, okay, what makes someone a refugee? Do these people fulfill the standards? What is the matter behind it? Thank you, Nina and Cal, for giving me the matter behind it. So, okay, that's my first and impressively matter-loaded argument. Yeah, and I guess one last thing before we move on to the next topic is the question of why are these people fearing for their lives in the first place? Like, what, what caused the sudden shift that the U.S. is suddenly trying to protect their allies? What are they protecting them from? And... If you remember last week's episode or the week before, I think both our episodes had something to do with the Taliban, right? It's also worth noting that there's growing Taliban militias, Chinese presence is growing as well, and there are increasing numbers of Taliban bases in Afghanistan. And the White House is now facing intense pressure um, when the Afghanistan's president blamed the American troop pullout for worsening the violence within the country. So this is their way of making amends, I guess, or trying to save their, the optics of the country, of the United States in particular, by offering something in exchange. Like, hey, I, I pulled out of your country. I'm sorry. I'm causing a mess. I will grant you refugee status. So I guess it's a, like a reversal. Instead of me being there, just move to the United States. Like, go to us. And that's how we'll help you out. Again, a lot of things can be said about this. I think it's very debatable. Should we celebrate? The, this new protocol or is this just America's way of like removing accountability from their actions? Yeah, debatable. Yeah, debatable. Which leads us to the last thing, uh, which is something that like we tweeted about, but we still knew that we had to make it a part of today's episode, which is the issue about Wang Od and Nas Daily. So unless you have been living under a rock the past few days or have it been on social media or like, have it been on social media you, you do yeah you. that's good actually that's good actually yeah, if so, so don't don't get sad if you don't know about this this is why yeah. you're listening <laughs> so Wang Od um, is the last and oldest Mamba Bato uh, which is a tattooist in the traditional um, Butbut tribe um, in Kalinga um, she has been tattooing headhunters and women of the Butbut tribe and uh, and which is an indigenous people in the region, for almost 90 years. She's 104 years old. She started when she was 15. So she's been doing it for almost 90 years. 
Um, and to give more context about how important that is, those specific headhunters no longer exist. And because of that, she was awarded, um, she nominated and awarded to be a recipient of the National Living Treasures Award. So, let's talk about Nas Daily. So you might know Nas Daily um, from his daily one-minute informational, quote-unquote informational. I, I put quotes there because sometimes it's oversimplification. Um, where it always ends with, that's one minute, see you next, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, that, that, that's like a big meme. That became a big meme for yeah. a while. And, and for us specifically. Yeah, because yeah. Like, <laughs> I would exercise for like a minute and be like, okay, that's one minute. See you next week. Yeah, I, that, that that meme existed before we were even together. Like, we yeah. were joke about that. That's how old Nas Daily is in the consciousness of some debaters. Yeah, so anyway, uh, Nas Daily has branched out in the form of Nas Academy, which is basically like Masterclass, except it's controlled by the Nas. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, basically, it offers lessons and activities to help people in their vlogging, their social media careers, etc. And one of those courses was called the Ancient Art of Tattooing, which was placed under the purported Wang Od Academy. And this was problematic because apparently, she did not consent to the masterclass. Actually, I've heard two different versions of this story. One version of it says that she totally did not consent to the masterclass. Like, she did not consent at all. Mm -hmm. Another version of this story, they actually did talk to an apo of Wang Od. Um, and the apo translated it to Wang Od, and then Wang Od agreed. But apparently, she didn't really truly understand the ramifications of what she agreed to. So, either way, it doesn't seem like she truly consented or understood the terms of that agreement. She didn't really consent to it. So what ended up happening was they took some pre-recorded videos, put a translator to play over the audio as if they were translating Apo Wang Od, um, what she was saying, but she really wasn't teaching tattooing. Yeah, so not only did the like offer lie, it was something that was not consensual. Like regardless of what version you heard, like whether it was a mistranslation or an outright no, Consent does not exist in either of those contexts. And I feel like that's the most important takeaway from all of this. So I feel like there's also an issue here now. Actually, there are multiple issues. And the first one would be on the aspect of the responsibility of content creators. For one, this is not Nas Daily's first controversy relating to the Philippines. They previously interviewed Manny Pacquiao, which is obviously debatable, especially since it might have been seen as premature campaigning. Or at the very least, platforming a homophobe and a misogynist for the sake of hashtag Pinoy pride and Pinoy baiting, right? Another thing is the question of do content creators and advertisers have a responsibility to always tell the truth about the products they make? So there was stock footage, it was used, they claimed it was a masterclass when really it was just you watching a lecture. So it was misleading the audience and the audience had to pay 750 pesos for the class using Wang Od's name. And they profited from these videos without her knowledge or consent. And the lie was so obvious and it was clearly... Wait, no, but if... The thing here is, I feel like it is a spectrum, right? So if the lie is so obvious, right? Th there's no r possible way to justify why anyone who would 
be like a reasonable person would ever really believe that. So you see an advertisement like Old Spice body spray, but you don't really believe that the smell never dies, right? Mm. But I feel like there are grayer areas here. Like one of like where the claims are semi-realistic, it's sort of debatable. So if you look at Belle Delphine, well, Belle Delphine, where remember I feel like was... some of our audiences too young to be knowing who Belle Delphine is. No, Belle Delphine is. How do I describe this person? She's a content creator that makes a lot of satirical material and kind of trolls the internet by being the stereotypical quote-unquote Twitch talk, right? Like selling their bodies, like the type you see in OnlyFans. And She does know, have an OnlyFans. Oh, she does have an OnlyFans yeah. now. Okay. Well, nothing against those type of people, but the, the thing about Belle Delphine is that they were a special kind of content creator. They actively tried to see how much they could get away using their looks. And one of that things is the bathwater incident. The, the bathwater incident. <laughs> it's not intense, but that's what it is. Like, she bathed in a bathtub and then individually packaged the water that she bathed in and then sold it and so many simps bought it and then they were microscopically testing it yeah, for they dead, were testing, yeah. dead skin cells. And I, I remember there was an issue where someone wanted to sue her because there was nothing in the water and it's like, you didn't bathe in this. You falsely advertise. Yeah, so in, in those cases, it, it's more of a gray area, right? Um, because on one hand, people sort of didn't like that they might have been misled. Like, they f- sort of felt like they were lied to. But on the other hand, people said that it's kind of okay to troll your audience, especially if, you know, they're objectifying you. At least, like, make it a part of your hustle. And that in itself is quite debatable. But it's not related to Wangod. It's just there to illustrate, you know, like the different situations in which withholding information from like your audience or someone who is going to buy stuff from you, like might be strategic or might be ethical. But in this case, I feel like it's a bit harder to justify because you're not only trolling your audience, but also putting someone in the crossfire. And that person happens to be from an ethnic minority. So th- there is this concept called buyer beware, which is if you buy something like um, some- something was advertised to you and then you buy something, mm-hmm. you have to beware that it might not be all like all that. It might not be everything that was hyped out to be. Um, businesses usually make exaggerations in order to sell their stuff. And in fact, in, in the civil code, it says that these usual exaggerations in the course of trade are not considered fraud. They're not fraudulent because it's just something that you would expect a salesperson to do. Um, but there's a difference between exaggerating a claim and outright exploiting another person, which leads to the next issue I think here, which is preservation. So the main pitch of NAS Academy was that, look, we don't want to let this culture die. We want to pass it on, and that's good. But we have to recognize that the commercialization of indigenous culture is often not friendly to indigenous peoples themselves. And even in the case, the best case scenario where you do get more awareness, you know, like let's say a lot of people did buy into it and people learned more about um, Mamba Batok and stuff like that. Are you giving them the proceeds? So it looks like 
NAS Academy didn't plan on giving Wang Od or her family or her community the money. Or if they did, we weren't really sure if it was an equitable or justified like profit-sharing thing, right? Um, I would say that um, if it actually looks like she didn't sign a contract at all, or even in the best case where like an apo translated to her, the question here is how can we make sure that the apo understood the terms of the contract as well? So it might not even be a translation thing um, between the apo and Wang Od. It might be a translation thing between the legalese document was shown before the apo mm. and the apo. But we, we, we don't know that. We don't know that. Yeah, but my take on this is that even if there was like equitable sharing, like assuming Wang Od got a lot of money from this, are we okay with the fact that a culture will continue to spread by people not from that particular culture? Right? Is it still their culture if a white person starts doing it and majority of the people who do it are, are past colonizers? Like, well, death of fair, the author, but make it cultural. Well, to be fair, Nas Daily is not white. Like, no, they're not, very I'm rich and very Nas, privileged. I'm not talking about Nas Daily. I'm talking about the people buying into the, into the masterclass, which is probably a bunch of white people. Yeah, I guess so. Um... And we are going to talk about Pinoy baiting later. <laughs> oh, I'm excited about that. that You're excited that's about all that. me. <laughs> yeah, but I, I feel like what kind of preservation do you really get there? Um, because in the worst case where Wang Od or her family doesn't get money at all, is this basically just like paying artists in exposure? Um if this was a YouTube video, I would have like put a link like at to the top right other or, to our other episode about paying artists for expo with exposure. But also, will the culture be able to survive for longer with that exposure? Uh, for me, it's also an issue of cultural appre- appreciation. Wow, na bulala. Culture, cultural appreciation. One word at a time. <laughs> versus cultural appropriation. Hey, you said controversy yeah, earlier. Yeah, I did. Yeah, so where do you draw the line between appreciation and appropriation? And I, in my opinion, the line should be drawn where consent exists or not exists. So let's take a look at fashion. In fashion, um, there was a lot of controversy about the appropriation of Aztec art. Like, remember the Jejecaps with a lot of lo- those zigzags? Don't call them Jejecaps. That's mean. Yeah, but like that was their reputation. L- like, a certain kind of person wore this. And it was a bad stereotype and sort of classist, to be honest. But anyway, um, the- it was appropriation of a certain aesthetic that you got from um, Aztec culture. Um, and it became a fashion aesthetic you can find in not only baseball caps, but also handbags. Um, and it didn't really respect the roots of the aesthetic or the processes that were traditionally used for that. But on the other hand, you also have some creators um, that use the um, indigenous aesthetic but they do it in a way that includes members of that community, includes a lot of the traditional knowledge and traditional practices and those kinds of um, movements, those kinds of um, companies or businesses, whatever, they tend to get better reception from the community. An example of that is the Kandamo Collective, um, which um, was started by Vic Pagilat, who is... Oh, wait, no, we haven't announced it. 
uh, who is a good friend of ours. Who's <laughs> a good friend of ours is Nina's coach. Um, but anyway, preservation of culture should come with the consent of those to whom the culture belongs. And why is that the case? I think it's because they are the ones who will ultimately benefit or be harmed by these attempts of preservation. They should also be the ones who decide how to go about it and what to benefit from. And actually, I feel like by commercializing, commodifying these designs, a lot of the actual culture might get lost. So the methods, the cultural and spiritual significance could be lost when you put it on a handbag um, or when you use like um, mass production techniques to make the same aesthetic. So you get the aesthetic, but not any of the meaning, not any of the processes, stuff like that. And the thing about art, in my opinion, especially in the context of culture, is that it all tells a story at every stage of production, not just about what you see, but how it was made, the context behind why it was made, how it made people of the time in that culture um, feel. So if the indigenous people, if the IP doesn't want to commercialize that art, what could be an alternative for preservation is to pass it on on their own terms. So actually, in the case of Wang Od, the culture is not really going to die yet. In fact, this issue was brought to everyone's attention because of her grandniece, um, Grace um, Palikas, who took to social media to say that it was a scam. And Grace said, um, Grace is actually Wang Od's apprentice, um, and the culture is being passed down to her. The skill is being passed down to her. So Wang Od is, quote-unquote, the last Mambabatok in the traditional and professional sense. That is to say, she was the last one to have actually used it to tattoo headhunters. But the skill can still be passed on. It's just a matter of who decides how it should be passed on and to whom it should be passed on. Um, so there's trade-off here because you do not reach as many people with this alternative. But you can assure that there will be more cultural fidelity in the recreations and reproduction. And in my opinion, we shouldn't even be that concerned about passing on a particular culture. If an indigenous community or an indigenous person decides that they don't want to pass on their culture anymore, we should respect that. Hmm. And this is an age-long debate. I've, I remember debating this, not debating this, but watching high schoolers debate this back when I wasn't debating it. Like when I was still observing debates to see if I would be an, into it. And they debated about whether dying languages should actively be preserved, right? Because sometimes cultures just naturally die and they die on the terms of the people who use that culture. And we should respect that and not force them to proliferate a culture if they're tired of it or if it no longer suits their needs as a community. Yeah. So again, it all comes back to... Consent. What, <laughs> consent. Right? But that is still debatable because like a lot of people could hypothetically... um learn more about particular cultures and with that knowledge learn how to be more respectful or learn like um just like the general curiosity that we have where you want to know how people from before lived um and like i feel like this could potentially be a solution to a lot of sort of white superiority or something like that um white supremacy like these feelings of white supremacy like before you had these ideas about like oh because we do not know how to build pyramids it must have been the aliens oh you're right that's the thing yeah so if we had preserved 
the cultural knowledge behind how these things were made or you know how these pieces of art were made and why they were made it might dispel these future misinterpretations or false assumptions that you know it might have been the aliens they were doing this in order to you know worship the god of death as they killed their enemies or whatever like those things that you do not like really like hearing because it seems to be misinformed you should be able to fix with this like more knowledge so that is another trade-off that like you need to look at there i'm not a fan of that argument though like no offense because it assumes the culture needs to adjust to the egos of white people like I, if anything i feel like we should not be preserving things just to protect ourselves from the white man right the white man should adjust and stop thinking that things that are unfamiliar are created by aliens that's an easier fix Mm, is it an easier fix though no i mean it's obviously not easier but why are we victim blaming we're basically victim blaming a culture for not being preserved because you didn't preserve yourself like it's not their fault and it's not oh, their obligation if you didn't want us to oppress you you should have told us that you weren't you weren't yeah. worshiping aliens like yeah that's the vibe i get but anyway speaking of cultures and the consent it's also about intellectual property rights and i feel like the wong odd issue also shows a lot of this because they don't have a lot of copyright protections because the authorship is unknown or unknowable, although we're sure that they belong to a particular cultural group. Like, does Wang Od own the Mambabato culture? Like, not necessarily, but at the same time, we know deep down that it's theirs. But there's no patent or legal paper that says it's purely theirs. Yeah, so you would see, like, the design, the aesthetic, is clearly from the but-but. But, that particular piece is not directly attributable to Wang Ot mm. or something like that, you know, um, because we have traditional knowledge that is passed down from one generation to the other. And you can't just apply intellectual property rights law that we have onto that knowledge because our intellectual property um, rights system is based on this concept of authorship but when things are passed down you don't really know for sure who is the real author of this thing although you know that it's a product of this particular culture so the our intellectual property code again the remedies for copyright infringement um that are based on authorship is to um stop the counterfeiter from producing any more copyright infringement and to compensate the author but what do you do if it is being stolen and what is being stolen is for sure part of your culture but you don't anymore know who has ownership of it so some people um including a student from up law rowan palma says that we can actually now look to international law because there's a treaty from the 70s called the burn copyright convention actually the amendment law was in the or the protocol was in 1970s it was originally from the 1880s. Wow. But anyway, it's the Bern Copyright Convention. And in that convention, it says that if the author is unknown, but you know for sure that the author was definitely a national of your country, your government should task one of its governmental agencies to defend that copyright on behalf of the unknown author. So in our case, it might be the, the NCIP or National Commission on 
um indigenous peoples um so in that case um even if you do not know the authors the state can sue a person who steals from that culture on behalf of the unknown author and of course there's a debate here as well because why should it be the state right because on one hand the state does have the most power the most ability to protect these um copyright these copyrights but you can also have a state and i'm not naming names mm -hmm. that do not care at all about the intellectual property rights of indigenous communities you might have states that try to kill members of indigenous cultural groups just because they might not agree with you and again i'm not naming any particular government or you know administration that may or may not be currently in power and is now currently killing members of indigenous groups i'm not naming anyone but in that worst case the ip does not have much of an immediate remedy yeah so I, I feel like that issue is a lot more complicated because in a perfect world it should be an, an easy fix well not easy but it should be like a clear-cut way to fix things like there, there should be a direction there are certain steps but the wong odd issue i feel like is still kind of a gray area in terms of what can be legally done and we're we're still seeing the story unfold like honestly i'm just waiting for twitter to update me on the wong odd issue it seems like a lot of news agencies haven't really picked up on it as extensively as the woke warriors of twitter are doing so i'm gonna look forward to that yeah also last of all because i just saw it this morning yeah um from our mutual friend from up law they said that since the tattoo designs are shared cultural expressions under the uh the ipra um or the indigenous people's rights act the law says that in order for you to use this piece of um this use of in order for you to be able to use this piece of cultural expression you need to get free prior and informed consent um from the community um even so even if it's not um you know this bad like the nas daily thing um even if they did get it from wang od that still wouldn't be enough under our governing law which requires consent from the community as a whole um but even arguing that it's not communally owned we go back to the original question of did wang od really consent to it yeah so i feel like that's it for that one the last issue i want to talk about is pinoy baiting like what started all of this in the first like what made Nas Daily look at our culture and be like, "I want to sell this. I want to make money of this." Yeah, and I feel like it, it's part of a bigger trend of what is called Pinoy baiting. And sadly, Kyle and I have fallen for this too. It's when foreigners use the Philippine culture as a way to catch people's attentions, especially if they're content creators and they want views. Like I feel like, <laughs> like using Jollibee, like. Oh, we tried Jollibee for the first time. We try everything in Jollibee's menu. And Kyle and I eat it up like a Jollibee chicken meal because of the fact that hashtag Pinoy Pride. And Nas Daily is no exception. The reason why this trend exists is because, admittedly, Filipinos are so glued to social media and are so hungry for external affirmation from foreigners. From foreigners in particular, that we we celebrate the slightest mention 
of our particular culture. Or what was that movie that they shot a single scene here and suddenly it it grows so well because all the Filipinos wanted to watch it. And it's just so dumb. It was like an remember. action movie that was filmed here. Anyway. It might be like Fast and Furious or something like that. I, probably not Fast and Furious, but something like that. And it's hilarious to me because it's such an effective strategy. And it's also sad though because our culture is being used as props. Yet we don't seem to appreciate people who use it genuinely. Like there are so many content creators that are actually Filipino that actually do the same things like eat Jollibee on the daily, but we don't care unless they're white or unless they're foreign, right? I mean, Nas Daily isn't white technically, but they're part of the bigger problem. And I feel like it's also the fault of Filipinos for being so easily baited, like you could say that. But of course, that's victim blaming. And there's really just a culture that exists here in the Philippines of being amazed when we get represented. There's a culture of Pinoy pride. Like every time there's an American Idol contestant that is one fourth Filipino, suddenly everyone has to vote for them. If you're Phil Ab, you have an obligation to be on your phone and vote for them. And it's hilarious to me. But it leads to problems like this. Yeah, and I think that it became even a bigger deal because of Luis de Guzman Mabulo, who wrote this really long post that quote unquote exposed Nas Daily because she was um, I think she founded something called the the Cacao Project, which is which is something different, but it's apparently a a social like initiative, a social enterprise. It's a social enterprise. Yeah, that's that's what they call themselves. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, let me just quote it. Um, when he went there, he apparently imitated and mocked the local accent and language, vocalizing Tagalog sounding syllabic phrases, saying it sounded stupid. He repeatedly said that the people of their hometown was poor. Farmers are so poor. Why are Filipinos so poor? He said, no one wants to hear about farmers or farms. It's not clickable or viewable content. He didn't care about making change or shedding light on real issues. He only wanted content. A good, easy story to tell that would get him more Filipino viewers. He even joked at the start of the day that all he needed was to put Philippines in the title and he'd rack in millions of views um, and the comments would come flooding with brainless Pinoy pride comments. And apparently, like, this is terrifying to read, but this person is not, you know... They're not a saint themselves. They're not a saint themselves because they're basically just a hashendera. But I still think that it's valid for her to call out Nas Daily um, for preying on basically um, colonial mentality that came about because we were victimized for hundreds of years by our colonial masters um, telling us that you should always strive for our attention, our very white, very rich attention, because we're better than you. And the only way for you to make it anywhere in that society is for you to be noticed and for you to be acknowledged by a foreigner. So That's sad. That is extremely sad, right? <laughs> but like, I feel like it's internalized colonialism. Like, it's embedded in us and even i can't shake that away when i see someone react to a filipino thing i tend to click on it except that stupid video that went to my timeline one day like hearing the philippine anthem for the first time that's hilarious because i feel like that's 
that's really like scraping the barrel. Like they they were that desperate that they were gonna react to our national anthem and hope that Pinoy's would click on it. But again, it racked in millions of views, just like Nas predicted. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to end this episode. I don't know how to end it. I don't like... want to end it on a sad note, right? But that just that's just how the news is this week. It seems like a mix of pessimism, especially for the Philippines. Like we have announcements like the PDP Laban slate, Iskomoreno's political harassment. We have our COVID situation of ECQ, whatever the letters are. That wasn't even like 80% of the news that we read this week. Yeah, I feel like being Filipino is just so tiring. And every week there seems to be something depressing to talk about. But, you know, we sum it down for you. We will read all the depressing things for you. Along with Jay. Thank you again, Jay, for writing this episode for us and with us. But good luck tomorrow as well. Yeah, good luck tomorrow as well for PIDC. Like it's this is for everyone who's listening because they're coming for PIDC as well. Yeah, and if you're not coming for PIDC and you're just really interested, if you're not from the Philippines, thanks for taking the time to listen to the last parts because I know that's it's very culturally nuanced. It's about a Philippine issue, but I still feel like it's it talks about a broader problem of cultural appropriation. That's it for this episode. It was quite lengthy, but just truly a lot happened this week. Very important rounds are coming up tomorrow and the next day. But most importantly, we'd like to thank you for, you know, making us a part of your weekly matter-loading routine. That's it for this episode. Um, We'll see you next week. Bye! Bye.